0: Many years ago now, a circus lion tamer was in the midst of the most dangerous part of his act. He was standing in the center of the circle. There were pedestals around him on which sat four ferocious lions. He had gotten them all worked up with the crack of his whip, keeping them at bay, and they were roaring, and they were slashing with their claws, when all of a sudden, the lights went out in the circus tent, completely unplanned. For a period of almost 30 seconds, the entire audience in the circus tent uh, waited with bated breath in a hushed horror, anticipating the ferocious, awful mauling that was about to take place, but which thankfully never came. And when interviewed later by a, by a reporter about the experience, the lion tamer was asked, what went through your mind when the lights went out? He said, honestly, I just froze. All I was aware of at first was the sound of the lions breathing. Breathing from all sides. It seemed like they were getting closer. And then I got really scared, he said, because it occurred to me that even though I could not see them in the darkness, they could sure see me. Can you imagine finding yourself in the center of a circle like that, I want to invite you to imagine it. Because as we close out our series of reflections on the book of Daniel today, you will be leaving this place and going out into the dark, wild world of today to Apply your act, in a sense, to do what you've been called to do. And as you go to those places that you'll enter into, those various circles, I want to encourage you to remember the breath and the eyes that will be upon you and the message that I hope that you'll take with you today. In the year 539 B.C., the great ferocious beast that was the nation of Persia, came bounding in suddenly and utterly mauled to death the nation that had been Babylon. By the time Babylon was taken by the Persians, the Persian Empire had amassed the largest and most brilliant regime of pre-Roman antiquity. The Babylonians believed themselves to be the summit of civilization and the Persians would go on to be even more. In fact, so extraordinary was the Persian system that when the Romans eventually rose to power, they took the administrative systems of Persia, copied them in their entirety, and implemented them. And I want to tell you a little bit about that administrative system because it sheds light on some of the passage we'll read today and will help you understand even some of what we read about in the New Testament as we learn about the Roman Empire. The Persians divided their empire into a mosaic of provinces. Each of those provinces had a governor appointed to them. So when the Romans took over this system, this explains why there is someone named Pilate, governor of the province of Judea. The same system was being used by the Romans. Because the Persians were concerned uh, about the danger that a governor might go astray, they Uh, kept that governor in line by also placing a general and a garrison of troops in each one of those provinces. And that general was answerable only to the crown. Now, to make sure that the governor and the general didn't conspire and begin to uh, use resources in a way that did not profit the Persian uh, empire, they also, the Persians also appointed a secretary in each one of these provinces who reported also directly to the home office. And then, just in case all three of those parties went into cahoots with each other, Uh, The Persians also had officials known as the king's eyes who audited the records of each of the provinces. Together, these various functionaries were known as satraps. Satraps. Thus we're told in today's text from Daniel chapter 6, it pleased Darius, the king of Persia, to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. Wow! Daniel, once again, has risen to a position of amazing authority and influence. In his famous parable of the talents, Jesus teaches in the New Testament that God has a way of entrusting to his servants a small amount of resources, watching what they do with those resources, and then he makes the decision, if they manage those resources well, to entrust them with even more. And so, we see in the life of Daniel, faithful management in little things, First, he begins managing his own character in a time of tribulation. He'd been taken as a slave. He'd been uh, stolen from his country of origin. He'd been enrolled in in a foreign system, and yet he remained faithful to his identity as a child of God He managed that well, and then God gave him more responsibility. And in the stories that we've looked at over these past weeks, we've seen how Daniel rises up through the administration of Babylonia to the very highest office, and now, as Persia has swept in and taken over from Babylon, Daniel is still on the rise, gaining even more influence as God entrusts him with the capacity to speak for him in higher and higher places. And then we're told Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. A little Jewish boy is now going to be the number one guy next to the king himself over the largest empire in human history to date. How do you think that appointment went over with the Persian satraps around Daniel? Not well. Not well. How many of you have ever seen the uh, Disney movie The Lion King? And they've just remade it now. And in that story, as you know, there is a figure there, Uh, by the name of Scar. He's a mangy old lion. He's the brother of the actual king. And when he sees the, the child of the king being lifted up and presented as the next king, Scar becomes very jealous and begins to connive and to plot to destroy the child. In like fashion, We're told that the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel. They looked for uh, grounds to charge him in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find, the text says, no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Oh, for Daniels, in every sphere of business, politics, society, and life today, in no way corrupt or negligent, trustworthy in every way. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Unless we can find a way to exploit the devotion that Daniel has, to his God, we'll never be able to bring him down." So for time's sake, I will simply condense and paraphrase what happens next. The power brokers come to King Darius and they say in effect, "'Bad news, Mr. President. The polls say your influence is waning. You're losing your grip here. We know that you are a stickler for religious freedom, sir. I need to point out that this is one of the unique aspects of the Persian Empire, is that as long as the nations they took over paid their tribute and remained peaceful, the Persians allowed tremendous religious freedom in those places, a pattern which the Romans then would also emulate and put into practice. Sir, we know that you like religious freedom, but we're telling you that that. that urgent times demand emergency measures and we want to suggest this revision in your policy temporarily. We'd like to suggest that you declare a, an official edict that says that for a period of 30 days that all of the citizens and people of your uh, nation should pray only to you. It's going to bring your name recognition up. It's going to get people thinking about you. It's going to turn their hearts towards your well-being, and it'll be terrific for you and your leadership in our empire. And then after 30 days, you can show how humble and generous you are and go back to the laissez-faire religious policy that you like. And Darius buys the program. He signs the policy into an edict. He says that whoever breaks it, will be thrown into the lion's den. That the price of praying to anyone but to him will be death by mauling from ferocious lions. I want to pause at this particular moment and just make a practical application of this story to your life and to mine. I'd like to suggest that as we go through our lives, Much like Daniel or like that circus performer that I mentioned at the start, we are never really all that far from the eyes and the breath of lions, as it were. And I wanna think with you today about three particular kinds of lions that have their breath and eyes upon us as we go about our daily lives. The first kind of lion are those beasts who breathe down your neck wanting to see you slip. They are like that character Scar, as I mentioned earlier in the Disney story, or like these satraps. They may be be out-and-out obvious enemies, or they may be secret opponents uh, of God's work in and through your life. Yet, if you are the kind of person who really values... Uh, honesty above all else, if you're the kind of person who refuses the dishonest or the unfaithful practices that mark some business circles, for example, but instead tries to be true in every way, these beasts are going to have it out for you. If you are the type of person who doesn't participate in the backbiting gossip or the blue humor that's popular in so many social circles these days, but instead is somebody who is committed to trying to speak words that build other peoples up, that that sets a higher vision of life, these these animals, these creatures are going to be uncomfortable with that and are going to be looking for a way to take you down. If you're the sort of individual who does not rationalize sin or seek comrades in it, but instead openly confesses failings, and seeks the company of people who help you grow in godliness, if you're one of those people that is progressively letting go of the effort to use resources to impress everybody else and instead is trying to use all that you are and all that you have to please God above all else, then you, like Daniel, will be the target of such lions. They will want to see you slip in some way. I'll leave the topic of the flesh and blood opponents that we have aside for a moment and just think for a moment with you about the beast who opposes you on the invisible spiritual plane. He would love to put you in a position where you have to choose between your devotion to God and your devotion to worldly security. In fact, one of the greatest stratagems of the adversary, as the Bible calls him, is to get us into positions where where, where we're tempted to choose worldly security over our devotion to God, or at least to compromise our investment in the things of God. And this is exactly the scenario that Daniel faced. If you think about it, when the king's edict was issued in Persia, there were a number of ways that Daniel might have handled that. He could simply have stopped praying for 30 days. Many people take a hiatus from worship or from spiritual practices for a few weeks' time. Or he could have prayed silently or secretly. Lots of people go underground with their faith. How many people in your workplace, your social circles, know how important your faith is to you? Lots of people go quiet about this. The beast and his unwitting lions, these satraps, would have just loved if they could have gotten Daniel to compromise in any way the quality of his connection with God. Because the Bible repeatedly suggests that it was this connection with God, it was this communion that Daniel had that accounted for his exceptional qualities as they're described in the Bible. It was the rooting he had in Christ, or in God, in the love of God and his vision of life that, that was the wellspring for, the, for all of the other fruit of Daniel's life. And if God's opponents can get us to compromise our engrafting into the vine, if God uh, can be separated from us in some way by distracting us or getting us wrapped up in seeking other kinds of securities, It will only be a matter of time before we begin to wither in other ways, before we begin to slip up in other areas and compromise the great potential for which God has has made us and sent us into this world. Daniel, in this story, would not let that happen. It's one of the greatest lessons, I think, of this entire tale, is that he so prized his devotion, his relationship with God, that he was willing to pay any price, if necessary, to preserve it. We're told now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem, toward the far-off city that was his original home. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before, And no surprise, the satraps catch him in the act. They are watching for this. They are hoping for this and they catch Daniel in the act of praying publicly to his God instead of to Darius. So they go back to the king and they remind the king that he had signed an official edict uh, on this particular subject. As verse 8 reminds us, in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, once signed, a royal edict cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, and I quote, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, uh, translation, one of those outsiders, one of those people not like us, that one, that Daniel, O king, uh, he pays no attention to you or to the decree that you put in writing. He still prays three times a day to his God. Now, he's, they're saying, in effect, you've got to bring the boom down on him. You, you've got you've to you've bring the consequences to this guy, or you're going to look very weak, King. Very weak. And it's right then when you expect, I suppose, the king to fly into a towering rage that somebody has defied his order so publicly and so outrageously that the scriptures actually tell us something really fascinating about Darius. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed, the scriptures say. He was determined to rescue Daniel. And he made every effort until sundown to save him. Darius has seen something in the character of Daniel that he deeply admires and is drawn to. Even though he doesn't yet embrace Daniel's religion, there's something about the character of Daniel that is profoundly compelling to Darius. And you get the sense that he's just looking now for a loophole, some way of sparing Daniel from the consequences of this edict. But there's no way to pull that off. Darius even prays, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you, Daniel. He prays for that kind of salvation. And the verses that subsequently come tell us that Darius personally went With Daniel, to the mouth of the lion's den, you you can just sort of imagine him going there with tremendous heartbreak, almost like the judge that has sentenced someone to die, going to the place of execution, not with a sense of righteous judgment, but with sadness and compassion, wishing that the sentence did not have to be carried out. And the Bible goes on to say that having watched Daniel thrown into the pit as the law required the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment and he could not sleep. He is grief-stricken at what is happening to this servant of God. I said earlier that there are three kinds of lions who are watching you in the circle of life. The first kind is like that Disney character Scar, the kind of lion that wants to see you slip. But there's a second kind, a type a little bit more like the the character Nala in the Disney story, who, who, who wants to see you succeed. Uh, who, who, who wants to see a different kind of outcome for you, even though, again, they may not fully understand all of what your faith is about. Uh, this, this kind of lion is a bit like another lioness I read about some years ago. Many years back now, it, uh, you may not even remember this news story, but George W. H. W. Bush, uh, the 41st president of the, our United States, uh, went to the funeral of the... Uh, former head of the Soviet Union, Leonid Brezhnev. And ever the dignified and gracious man, President Bush recounted feeling profoundly moved as he watched the service proceeding and he saw the, the, the stolid figure of Brezhnev's widow, Victoria, standing motionless by the coffin of her husband. Then just as the soldiers touched the lid of the coffin and began closing it, Bush recounts that he saw Brezhnev's wife do something that almost no one else was close enough to the action to see transpire. Victoria Brezhnev did something that goes down in history as one of the most amazing and dangerous acts of civil disobedience ever. Before the lid was closed, she reached in and made the sign of the cross on her husband's chest, the sign of the Christian cross on her atheist husband's chest. As one journalist later said it, there in the citadel of secular atheistic power, the wife of a man who had run it all hoped that her husband was wrong. She hoped that there was another life, and that that life was best represented by Jesus who died on the cross and that that same Jesus might yet have mercy on the soul of her husband. Mrs. Brezhnev is not alone. There are cats out there who are praying that God's word is right Do not forget that, because alongside of the beasts that breathe down your neck, hoping to see you slip, there are also others who watch you with bated breath, hoping to see you succeed, hoping to see the difference that the Christian faith makes. In every circle you walk into, there are people who actually wonder, maybe secretly, if the gospel that we profess and this approach to abundant life that Christians talk about and this Jesus that we worship might actually be the way, the truth, and the life after all. And like most felines, these people are a little skittish. Uh, before fully trusting God themselves, they are waiting to see the difference God makes in your life and, and in my life. What does God do in somebody's heart, for example, when she actually puts her trust in him for her future in the midst of a terminal disease? What happens to a person who cares more about soaking up biblical inspiration at the start of the day than secular information? How does God respond in the life of a person or work through the life of a person who does not cling to the material things of this world but actually tithes with them? What is the result when men and women and students choose to make the decision not to settle just for quality time in their relationships, but invest quantity time for, for with, what does God do with people who, who are willing to forego trends for the sake of great traditions, who will let go of materialism for the sake of important relationships? Is there death? Is there life? rather when someone chooses family bridges over corporate ladders or looking upward over looking inward or commitment over convenience or obedience over expedience. What kind of a difference does it make when someone dares to be a Daniel? When someone dares to live the Christian life in practice? There are creatures out there who will one day come to believe, who will one day give glory to God as Darius did, ultimately, when they see when one person, what one person does, or rather what God does through that person, when that individual makes no compromises in following him, in remaining devoted to him, Daniel was that person in Persia and in Babylon, Babylon before that. Will you dare, can I dare to be that person in our time? If we will, there will be a third kind of lion we'll meet, a final type I want to touch on. There will be one who wants to see you saved. I'm speaking of the one that Daniel had to have encountered on that long night in the lion's den. I'm speaking of the one that C.S. Lewis talks about in a story with which I'd like to close our time today. In his famous book, The Horse and His Boy, one of the Narnia Chronicles, Lewis introduces us to an orphaned child by the name of Shasta. Shasta is on a lifelong search for his true identity, for a real kind of security that he doesn't yet feel in life. And Shasta winds up in a particular moment in a very dark glen from which he can see no way out. All of the fears that have been part of his life story now echo in the cold, clammy fog that swirls about him and the sound of the growling of invisible beasts just beyond his seeing. Suddenly, writes Lewis, Shasta discovered that someone or something was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing. And the thing, or the person, was going so quietly," writes Lewis, that Shasta could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear, however, was breathing. Shasta's companion seemed to be breathing on a very large scale. Unable to see the presence, Shasta begins to panic but once more he feels the warm breath of this thing on his hand in his face and strangely he finds that breath reassuring and the boy begins talking. He tells how he had never known his real father or his mother and had been brought up sternly by a fisherman who found him he tells the story of a time when he made a narrow escape from imprisonment and then was chased by lions and forced to swim for his life. He spoke of a time when he was almost at his goal when another lion chased him. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, says Shasta. And a very large voice spoke in the darkness and it said, There was only one lion. What on earth do you mean? asked the boy. I have just told you there were at least two the first night. And there was only one, said the voice. But he was swift of feet. How do you know? said the boy. Because I was the lion, said the voice. I was the lion who forced you to join with that friend. I was the cat that comforted you amongst the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave your horse new strength for the last mile so that you reached your destination in time. And I was the lion you do not even remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to the shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight because I had awoken him to receive you. Suddenly, writes Lewis, the mist in which Shasta had been walking turned from black to gray and then from gray to white. And now the whiteness around him became a shining whiteness. And he turned and saw, pacing beside him, taller than the horse, a lion, and it was from the lion that the light came. And he lifted his eyes, and their eyes met. And instantly, the pale brightness of the mist and the fiery brightness of the lion rolled themselves together into a swirling glory and then gathered themselves up and disappeared. And Shasta was alone again, but somehow, never again alone, never again afraid, neither was Daniel, neither will you be, or I be, when we face what we face in days ahead. You and I can live with a lion heart in the midst of this wild world of ours today. For the one who stopped the mouths of beasts in Daniel's den, the one who opened the mouths of kings with praises in the throne rooms of Babylon and Persia, the one whom the book of Revelation literally calls the Lion of Judah still says, you go, be my witness wherever you are. You Go out there and be strong and courageous, for I am with you always, even when you do not see me, even when you do not sense me. I am with you to the very close of this age. Please pray with me. Gracious and all-powerful God, until that day dawns when every dark den shall dissolve before the fiery brightness and glory of your presence, until that sweet morning when you shall raise the faithful from the pit and lay the wicked low, strengthen us, we pray. Make us desire nothing so passionately as communion with you, Bring forth from that wellspring courageous lives that honor you in matters great and small. And when the enemy breathes hot upon our neck, or the world is waiting with bated breath to see how we, your people, shall live, then may you breathe upon us, O breath of God. Fill us with life anew. For this we pray. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.